We have uh, two readings this morning. The first is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, starting on page 831. If you don't have a Bible, just pop your hand up and one of the ushers will bring one to you. Verses 1 to 11. Imitating Christ's humility. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit... If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In our second reading is Daniel chapter 5 verses 1 to 12. This can be found on page 629. The writing on the wall. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought, them, they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought, and he said to those wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale, His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him the chief of magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, 
whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. I don't think I've ever been to a truly wild, out-of-control kind of party. feels like a few years ago you'd always see these kind of parties in the media. Someone would have, you know, an 18th birthday party and then 300 people would gate crash or something like that. I've never been anywhere near a kind of party like that. Closest I've ever come to to a wild party was when I was at uni. A friend had a party during exam time, which she called the Cranky Pants Party. It was a time where you could let off steam for all the exams that were happening and that sort of thing. But somehow this party at the end ended with a food fight. And I found myself in her cupboard raiding it for imitation maple syrup and then dishing it out to people as they put out their hands so they could smear it on people's faces. (laughs) Somehow there was also water involved and marshmallows and all of this was outside in the middle of winter at 2am in the morning. There was no alcohol, just heaps of immaturity. Marshmallows and maple syrup, that's about as wild as I've got when it comes to parties. Belshazzar's party is of a completely different magnitude. In our party, we were at risk of offending the neighbours, and and rightly so. Even now, Daryl and Hazel are looking a little bit worried. My next-door neighbour's here. Don't worry, guys, if I'm planning another party like that, I'll make sure I invite you. (laughs) We were at risk of provoking the neighbours, but Belshazzar is at risk of provoking God. And that's exactly what he does. Look at his party. Even from the start, it's a pretty showy, distasteful kind of event. It's all about Belshazzar and his magnificence. As you can see, that the story's moved on from Nebuchadnezzar to his son, Belshazzar. Actually, in the Bible, to call someone your son just means your descendant, uh, like Jesus is the son of David. And to call someone your father is to call them your ancestor, like Father Abraham. Belshazzar is actually probably Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And Belshazzar, he wasn't even really a proper king. His dad, King Nabonidus, was away from Babylon a lot with wars and then illness for a decade. And so Belshazzar functioned like a co-regent. But he was never a king in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar or his dad was a king. He never really achieves any of the great military kind of things that his, um, his father or grandfather had. But that doesn't stop him putting on this party to display his greatness. We're not told the occasion for this wild party, uh, and it's, it's actually difficult to figure out exactly what it was from history, though it's possible that it's a party to mark him actually becoming king in his own right, because his father's just been killed by the Persians, by Cyrus. Another possibility is that this is a party to rally his nobles in light of the imminent threat of Persia as their armies are just about to face off 80 kilometres away. Whatever the case, it's someone who's not really achieved very much boasting about how great he is. It's a huge banquet. There are a thousand nobles. And then the king drinks wine in front of them and parades his wives and his, his concubines before them. And then he tops off this proud display by ordering the sacred articles from God's temple in Jerusalem which Nebuchadnezzar had captured, and he wants them so that he and his wives and his nobles can drink wine out of them. 
Think about how God views his temple and what Belshazzar's actions communicate here. The temple was supposed to be the meeting place between God and his people. It was the symbolic way that God would dwell amongst his people. And so the temple actually communicates four things to us. God is not distant, detached, disinterested in his people. The first thing that the temple communicates to us is that God's great desire is to live with his people. And the temple made this possible. Or at least it pointed to a greater reality that would eventually make this possible. But the next thing that the temple communicated was that God was not to be taken lightly. His desire to live with his people was not to be confused with considering him to be of the same status or the same worth as his people. The temple said that God is of a completely different order. His value is immeasurable. His presence is of incalculable worth. His beauty is incomprehensible. You know, all the gold in the temple the carving, the the grandeur of it, all of this pointed to God's greatness, even as it was clear that no temple could ever truly contain him. The third thing that the temple communicated was that God cannot live with his people. See, there's a tension that was constantly there with the temple. God wants to live with his people, but the entire structure and operation of the temple communicates that God can't live with his people. God's not happy to overlook our corruption of who we're made to be. He's not happy to just put up with the fact that we've taken his good and twisted it into evil. He's not happy to put up with our tolerance of wrong, our justification of selfishness, our rebellion against him. All of these things, they make it impossible for a holy God to live with unholy people. And the temple clearly communicated our incompatibility with God. But finally, the temple communicated that God was going to find a way to overcome this incompatibility so that he could live freely with us. The temple pointed to God somehow dealing with our corrupted natures. The constant sacrifices were an important symbol of God's solution to come. That's what God was communicating in his temple, his desire to live with his people, his extreme worth, his incompatibility with people and his action to create a solution. Now think what Belshazzar was communicating to God when he called for those articles from the temple. And then more than that, look at what he does in verse 4. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. By calling for these articles from the temple, Belshazzar is celebrating the defeat of God's people and the destruction of God's temple, his desire to live with his people. And he's doing the very opposite of acknowledging God's extreme worth, isn't he? He's lowering God's articles from his temple to a common cup for his wives and his nobles and himself. And the idea that the God of Israel would be incompatible with people is rubbish to Belshazzar. He's not only happy to use God's articles from his temple for himself and his guests, but he's happy to use them in the praise of his own gods. He's saying loud and clear that God is nothing and his gods are greater. 
In fact, it's, it's hard to imagine a more arrogant way to say that he thinks God's nothing, he thinks God's people are nothing, he thinks God's plans to live with his people are nothing. Belshazzar is pretty much making a mockery of everything that God cares about. And he's put himself in an extremely dangerous position. He's pushed himself to the edge of the cliff and as we see, he takes himself over. And there and then God intervenes and reigns on his wild party as a dismembered human hand terrifies Belshazzar with words he can't understand. For us, it would look like these words up on the screen being written on the wall. MN, MN, TKL, PRSN. Because in the language at the time, you had to insert the vowels yourself. So if we did that, imagine now trying to insert the vowels ourselves into that, what could we come up with? Well, it could mean moan, moan, tackle prison. Could mean moon, man, tickle person. So for Belshazzar, he just can't figure it out. And in fact, he calls in all these advisors and they can't figure it out either. These guys never seem to be able to figure out anything. But then the queen hears the commotion and this is probably actually the queen mother, uh, Belshazzar's mum. She's probably actually Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And unlike Belshazzar, she remembers the days when her father was king and she remembers Daniel. Daniel's probably in his 80s now. And it seems like in the years that have gone by, he's no longer in favour in the king's court, or maybe he's kind of in retirement. Whatever the case, he's called back in. We're going to hear what happens next. Craig's going to read for us verses 13 to 21. You can follow along in your Bibles. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give the interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, All peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. Is it just me or does Daniel come across as not quite as polite as he used to be? 
Is it just that he's older and wiser and maybe a little grumpy at being called out of retirement? Or is it that he's a bit fed up with these pagan kings just not getting it? Or is it just that Daniel knows that the gifts that Belshazzar's offering him are completely useless to him? He's asked to interpret the words that have just been written. But what does he do? Well, he goes back, actually, to the time of King Nebuchadnezzar to interpret these words. He goes right back, well before Belshazzar was king. Daniel goes back to what happened in chapter 4, before this one, when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a tree being chopped down, like we saw in the All Ages spot. And Daniel had interpreted it for him. He told him that God was going to humble him for his pride. And then sure enough, a year later, Nebuchadnezzar was up on the roof thinking how great he was when God humbled him. He took him from being king to losing his mind and acting like an animal. Reality caught up with him. It's funny, as the kings in Daniel act like their God, as they become more and more glorious in their own eyes, how do they actually become in God's eyes? How does he see them in the book of Daniel? He sees them like animals. They actually become like savage beasts. In their pride and arrogance, as they set themselves in the place of God, they don't reach the mark, they don't even get close, they actually become less human and more beastly. See, true humanity is always humble before God. You want to be the truest form of what it means to be a human, then be humble before God. Reality catches up to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 when God started treating him according to how he behaved. But God had mercy on him. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar looks to heaven. He humbles himself before God because God allows him to. And the astounding, amazing thing about God is that he has mercy on him and restores him, not just to his right mind, but to his kingship as well. That's the kind of God our God is. He just longs to show mercy to those who humble themselves before him. God taught Nebuchadnezzar a powerful and a costly lesson that God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. And Daniel says to Belshazzar, this is an eternal truth that he should have learned from Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to how he puts it in Daniel 22 to 28. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel pasim. This is what those words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. You would think that the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned would stay in the family psyche for a long time, wouldn't you? God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth. 
and sets over them anyone he wishes. But Belshazzar doesn't seem to have much time for the lessons of the past. It's not that he didn't know about what God had done to Nebuchadnezzar. It seems to be more that he thinks he's special. It's that he seems to think that he's different. He's immune from God's control. And he sent that message loud and clear to God. And in return, the message that God sends to Belshazzar is mene, numbered, tikal, weighed, Perez divided, which Daniel says means the days of Belshazzar's rule are numbered and coming to an end. They've been weighed and they haven't measured up. And so his kingdom is divided. It's, it's broken away from him and given to someone else. Perez is the singular of parson in that language. And also, actually, it sounds like Persia. Perez sounds like Persia. God's verdict is that he's not going to allow Belshazzar to arrogantly rule forever. In fact, that very night, his rule was going to come to an end. Craig's going to read for us the final two verses of our chapter. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. It's October 539 BC. Cyrus the Persian didn't meet the Babylonian army where they were hoping and expecting. Instead, he sends a smaller force which, sne- which snuck down to Babylon and they took the city virtually without any resistance and Belshazzar was killed. And in fact, in one of the ancient reports, they report that the guards were drunk on duty. What should we learn about this story about Belshazzar? Well, we'd do well to learn the lesson that he failed to learn wouldn't we? What Daniel says is true about God here is true not just for Babylon. These are eternal truths. God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. That's true for Babylon. That's true for Persia who followed. This is true of all rulers, as Paul tells us in Romans 13.1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities For there is no authority except that which God has established. Rulers are only there because God has put them there. They'd do well to learn the lesson that Belshazzar refused to learn. They'd do well to remember who's really in charge. But of course, often they don't. And what this means for us is that we shouldn't be naive. All nations have got beastly tendencies. Some are more beastly than others. But as the people of God, we can't afford to be naive. If we're naive, we'll think that we can make Australia a Christian nation. But the reality is, you just can't tame the beast. The political solution to our problems is not to make Australia a Christian nation. We see the political solution in Daniel in chapter 7, where we see one like a son of man coming on the clouds, someone who rules an everlasting kingdom over all people. Jesus identifies himself as this person. At his arrest, the high priest said to Jesus in Mark 14, 61, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And listen to how Jesus responds. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus identifies himself as the answer that God's people were waiting for the one who would judge the nations and bring their rule to an end, the one who would rule forever, but not like the beasts, 
Jesus will rule with justice and mercy. But if we're naive, then we'll be surprised when we see beastly behaviour from our governments in this world and we won't be ready for it. Or even worse, we won't even notice that it's happening. We shouldn't be surprised, we should expect it. doesn't mean we have to accept it, but it does mean that we shouldn't blindly trust our government. We should think carefully about where they lead us and want to take us. The reality for us is that our own nation worships more and more humanism and secularism and more and more is is happy to dishonour God. We've been seeing this in school curriculums long before safe schools. Even as a kid, as I, I think of my own schooling, we see this kind of thing. If you're a parent here, it's your job to help your kids sift through what's good and what's beastly, even if they go to a Christian school. So you don't turn your back on a brown snake. One time when I went um, hiking with a couple of friends, they wanted to kind of go Bear Grylls style, taking no sleeping bags and no food. And uh, even though it was going to get down to kind of like zero degrees overnight in the place where we were, and I convinced them to take a sleeping bag and I said, I'm taking food, I don't care what you're doing. They were convinced they were going to find food along the way. wasn't long till we found a brown snake but they didn't exactly handle it like Bear grills. There was plenty of dancing up and down, jumping as the brown snake struck twice at my friend. A fair bit more screaming than Bear grills seems to do. But one thing we didn't do was turn our backs on it. You can be sure of that. You don't turn your back on a brown snake. Even if it looks friendly, that would be naive. We shouldn't expect our government will always be friendly towards Christian ideas and values. We should expect them to bite from time to time. But while chapters 4 and 5, they remind us not to be naive, they don't allow us to be cynical. In fact, they demonstrate the complete opposite. Who sets the rulers over us? God. That's the point of these chapters. That's the very lesson that Belshazzar failed to learn. Our rulers are God-appointed. So while we're naive about what they're, we're not going to be naive about what they're capable of, we're not going to be cynical either. What do you do if you're cynical about your government? Well, you either try to overthrow it, or more likely for us, you withdraw and disengage. But throughout Daniel's life, he doesn't withdraw from society. You don't see him set up a commune. Instead, Daniel's there involved in the nation of Babylon involved at the highest levels, never compromising and also not in it for the usual benefits that political positions can bring. Did you notice that when Belshazzar offers him gold and titles, he doesn't want them, even though in the end, Belshazzar forces them on him. Daniel's there for the glory of God and we should be too. We should engage with our world and our culture, whether it's by writing to our politicians whether it's by joining a political party and help steering where it goes, or even if it's by entering that dangerous world of politics ourselves as a politician, whether it's in the workforce or on a parents and friends committee at a school, anywhere and everywhere where to engage and be ready to speak for the glory of God. In many ways, the message that we're to speak to our governments and our culture is exactly the same message that Daniel was to speak. 
mene, mene, tikkun parson. In gentle ways, we're to remind our leaders that their rule is numbered, it's limited. Their rule will be weighed by God and their rule will ultimately be handed over to Jesus. Ironically, our governments um, already are, um, <laughs> our governments already live by mene, mene, tikkun parson in many ways except that the ones who are weighing up and dividing and numbering their days, it's not God, but the people. Our job is to remind our governments, no, they're not serving the people ultimately. It's God that they need to acknowledge and not overstep the limits of their rule before God. But these chapters don't just speak in the end to rulers, they speak to us individuals as well. One of the individual truths that Daniel says to Belshazzar in verse 28 is this. You can see it up there. God holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Literally, this says, he holds his breath. Now, this is not just true for kings, but for all people. God holds our next breath in his hands. I take my breathing for granted most of the time. I don't really even think about it, you know, and when you do, you kind of start to get a little bit dizzy, so you don't want to. But this breath, our next breath, it's given by God. We're completely dependent on Him. And so it doesn't make sense for us to not honour Him. Not simply because He can withdraw our breath at any point, though that's true. An even greater reason to honour Him is because He's given us the gift of each breath in the first place. But the reality is we can be like Belshazzar at times. We can take from God but refuse to acknowledge that our very breath is given by Him. Belshazzar takes the things that are from God, the articles from his temple, and he uses them in a way that dishonours Him. He praises his own God with them. And in a way... We can all do a version of this. We may not do it so pretentiously and in front of a thousand people, but whenever we take the things that God values, the things He loves, and, and we use them in a way that ignores Him or puts ourselves before Him or attributes His gifts to something other than Him, then we're doing the sort of thing that Belshazzar's doing here. We're dishonouring God. Think about the many gifts that God gives us that He values. The gift of life, of family, of money, of career, of artistic expression, of friends, of sex. Whenever we find ourselves loving His gifts more than Him or serving His gifts more than Him or finding our security in His gifts more than Him or praising His gifts more than Him, Whenever we do that, we're at risk of doing the same kind of thing as Belshazzar, of dishonouring the one who holds our very breath in his hand. In the end, God's message in this chapter applies to all of us. Mene, mene, tikkun parson. Our days are numbered. Our actions will be weighed by God. And in the end, all of us will meet the true King, Jesus. And if we haven't humbled ourselves before Jesus then like Belshazzar, we're in that same dangerous position. But God is a God who loves to show mercy, who's just waiting to lift up the ones who humble themselves. 
a God who even gives Nebuchadnezzar a second chance. He's a God who longs to live with his people and he makes that possible. Jesus, of course, is the solution that God was always pointing to in the temple. In Jesus, God comes to live with his people to overcome our incompatibility with him for good, which is outrageous when you think about it. Even though Jesus honours God perfectly, yet he takes our punishment for the way that we dishonour him. Even though Jesus acknowledges the Father with every breath, and in fact, with his last breath, he acknowledges that God holds his very breath in his hand. Into your hands I commit my spirit or my breath. Jesus gives his life so that God can live with us freely, forever. Jesus is a king completely unlike Belshazzar, a king who humbles himself so that he can lift us up. If we're paying attention to this God, if we see what Belshazzar failed to see, if we've learnt the lessons that he didn't learn, nothing in the end will stop us from humbling ourselves before this God and rushing to bend our knee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of who you are. Lord, we have dishonoured you in so many ways in our lives and yet still you long to be our God and for us to be your people. You have given Jesus for us. He willingly gave his life, breathed his last on that cross so that we could be eternally compatible with you, not because of our record, but because of Jesus. We thank you so much for him and we pray, Lord, that you would also enable us by your Holy Spirit being at work in us to honour you in our lives, honour you with how we live and, Lord, to take the gifts that you give us and use them for your praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.